Welcome back to Detroit Strange. This podcast. That you're listening to. I thought about doing it before you, but then I, saw I it paused at last minute. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that is Alex over there. And that's Jazz. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah. This week's been a week for some reason. I don't know why. It really has. But just to update everybody, Alex's show was a lot of fun. Yes. Flavor Town of Love. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Mitch, for coming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a great show. You guys put together a really good run order. I thought it was a fun one. Yeah. it was. I was cracking up when I was, you know, the parts yeah. I wasn't in. I was backstage laughing pretty much the entire time. Yeah. And trying to, like, peek at the stage yeah. where I could. <laughs> it was fun being in the booth this week. So it was the first time since we started this run that I was, like, running the booth. Mm-hmm. And it was nice to be able to see the whole show as it was happening, yeah. kind of like as the audience is seeing it. That's interesting because that means you're the only person in the group who has seen the whole show. Yeah. Besides Lauren, our yeah. director. But yeah, what an interesting, maybe that's why Alexis loves it so much. Maybe. Our our VIP booth professional. Yes. 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 But yeah, so good job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, There's a couple shows. That I've been wanting to ask you about or just tell you about. Okay. Because they're based on, they're true. One is a full documentary. One is based on a true story. Okay. First up, and I've been meaning to ask you about this one for weeks, but I saw producer Patty the other day. We talked about it very briefly. Uh Have you heard or seen the Tinder swindler on Netflix? I've heard of it. I couldn't tell you anything other than the title though. It is interesting. It wasn't it like a guy. I'll let you. I'm not even gonna guess. Uh, I mean, it, it's a guy who was on Tinder. Yeah. Con man. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't want to say too much because I encourage you to watch it or anybody else. Okay. Uh, it is documentary, so spoilers are different in the documentary world. I feel like. Yeah. But it's a very interesting story, and you you get the perspective of the people he interacted with. We'll say. Okay. Yeah. So. Very interesting. The other one is based on a true story, but then some of it's made up, but all the main points of it are based on a true story. Yeah. And it's called Inventing Anna. Another one I've heard of, and I even like started reading an article of like what's true and what's not in the show. Mm-hmm. Oh, send that to me. I don't, I'll have to find it again because it was like uh, one of the ones that my phone just kind of throws articles yeah. at me. I started reading it. And I'm like, I haven't seen this show. Why am I reading this? <laughs> But it sounds interesting because Anna Sorkin, right? Or Sor- Sorokin? I don't know. Uh, y- yes. Yeah, not Sorkin. Um, that's that's a director. Yeah, but she in. I mean, she had. She goes by Anna Duvet. 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 Yeah. Duvet. Dupree. Michael's. Angelo. <laughs> yes. The third. <laughs> yeah, but sh- so she goes by you know an alias yeah, essentially, yeah. and I won't say too much about it, but it is about a socialite. Russian-born, raised in Germany, socialite who's in the United States. Uh-huh. She has quite the story of her history and her past and her family. Uh-huh. And she's decided, like, she wants to build this foundation, basically in New York, kind of for, like, the super elite, you know, into art, kind of high culture. Yeah. 
club for yeah. people to go to. And it's about her kind of journey through that, the people she meets along the way and some things that happen. Uh-huh. And, you know, a lot of it is about her trial. Okay. Her subsequent trial to it all. Yeah. So, and it's interesting too, because I, oh, I forget the actress's name, but it's got the actress from Ozark playing the main character. And I had to look it up because she does such a good job and she's very unrecognizable uh-huh. in this character. Interesting. Yeah. So amazing job. And then also uh, Anna Chomsky, Chomsky, I can never say it. From My Plonsky? Girl. I don't know. The the main girl in my the movie Mind Girl. I've never seen it. <gasps> oh my gosh. That's a tragedy. I don't even know if I've heard of it. Who's the in movie that? My Girl? Like maybe by name, but I couldn't. Jamie tell Lee you. Curtis is in it. Your girl. <laughs> I do like her. And Dan Aykroyd's in it. Okay. Macaulay Culkin is in it. Okay. Yeah. Interesting lineup. Two of them are kids in like the um sixties. Oh. And when did this? It had to been like late nineties, early two thousands. And if Macaulay was still, child. it was the nineties. Okay, yeah, and yeah, because he was he was like decently. I mean, I think it was past home. I don't know the where it goes. Probably because I think Home Alone was like ninety two, ninety three, or even ninety, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. No, but it's a really it's a great movie. The movie My Girl. It's people my age bracket are probably all deeply like. You get emotional about that movie. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> well, anyway. Yeah. This person who was in that movie is in this TV show. Okay. She's done a lot in between, too. That was just my my number one reference point. Yeah. For myself. Then we have My Girl 2. Also great. There's a sequel. There is a sequel. Okay. I love the sequel. Okay, that's I'm not going to say it's the same as the the first My Girl. That one hits in a certain way, but the sequel was enjoyable for me. And that's all you can really ask from a sequel is like, it's almost never going to be better than the original. Mm -hmm. And I don't don't know if you'd want it to be. I mean, obviously, it'd be nice if it was, but like, with a sequel, you kind of know a little bit of what to expect. So it's like kind of hard to have that like surprise wow factor of the original. Kind of to a certain degree. I mean, both of the movies are about like. I'm just speaking in general. Yeah, obviously. no, they're coming of age stories, so okay. they're they're focused on certain aspects. Yeah. Of that, we'll say. Okay. We might have to add these to our movie list for sure. But anyway, inventing Anna was very interesting. It's kind of weird because I feel like there's like a climax point, and it's not the end of the show. Uh-huh. But also, I think because it was based on like reality. Yeah. There's more that happened after, you know. So. It kind yeah. of continues. Oh, Laverne Cox is also in it. I do love her. Yeah. Yes. She's great. I have been watching a lot of period pieces lately. You were saying that, yeah. I've kind of been a period piece hoe lately. And I'm not mad. I, like, I didn't realize how much I loved a period piece until yeah. like the past like week or two. Because I watched, like last Sunday, I watched three movies set in the early 1900s. Interesting. Like it, I watched... Nightmare Alley, Maurice, or no. So I guess it's spelled how I would pronounce Maurice, mm-hmm. but it's the UK, so I think they just pronounce it Morris. Okay. Yeah. But it was like based off the novel Morris or Maurice by E.M. Forster, which was interesting because it was written in the early 1900s, but not published until the 70s because oh. 
Yeah. It's a like gay romance, basically. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to give away the ending, but it's not a tragedy, we'll say. And so Ian Forster is like, I don't think I can get this published because it doesn't end in the typical gay fashion where someone gets stoned to death or hit by a bus or drowns or AIDS or. Mm-hmm. Although know, I think in the early end- 1910s, nobody was getting hit by a bus. Or AIDS. Um, <laughs> or you're right. But just kind of like most most gay characters did not meet a happy end. And it was kind of this whole like morality thing of like, well, you can't show the gays having a happy life because then people will think it's okay. And we don't want that. Mm-hmm. And so he like, basically this novel wasn't published until a year after his death, but he kind of just like kept working on it throughout uh-huh. his life. Because so I read the afterwards, very interesting breaks on his thought process on it. And mm-hmm. like, people who kind of evaluated it along the way. Yeah. So this was like a movie adaptation, I think in like 87 starring um, Hugh Grant as one of the lead oh. characters. Something Dabney was the main, like the main guy, Morris. Okay. I'm struggling to remember that. It's like I watched three movies on Sunday. You can't remember the, the third one? Yeah. I, like it was the first one I watched and I'm like. It's too long I, ago now. Yeah. Too much time has passed since that first movie, but not the second one. I guess not. Nightmare Alley, I was kind of just like, eh, about. Have you heard of it? No. It's like, it's an Oscar buzz movie. Guillermo del Toro. Okay. Kind of a thrillery. You know what he does. Mm-hmm. I guess it like was one of the first Guillermo del Toro that didn't really have like a fantasy element to it. It was all kind of based mm. in reality. Oh, that is interesting. But it was like 1930s, 1940s carnies and like oh. a mentalist kind of acts. It had all the makings of a good movie. Yeah. It just kind of was like, I mean, given I was, this is also the third movie I watched in a day too. So maybe I was just kind of in a mood, mm-hmm. but yeah, I didn't love it. I was like, that's but based I mean, off the trailer though. I was like, this is going to be a movie I love. Yeah. And it wasn't. And I was kind of bummed about it. That happens sometimes though. Yeah. I mean, whoever put that trailer together did a really good job. Absolutely. Yeah. I will say ending on a high, I did start the Gilded Age on HBO Max. Mm-hmm. And that is fantastic. Okay. Like that takes place in the 1880s during like the railroad boom mm-hmm. in like New York. And it's like old money, new money. I think it's like the Downton Abbey writer and Christine Baranski playing old money. New York is perfect. Love her. Yeah. Same. <laughs> same. She's perfect in this. Awesome. Yeah. That's, so highly recommend that one. That's great. Yeah. This week I've been mostly like rewatching stuff because I was doing other stuff in the background. Other than I did start watching Love is Blind. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> there's a new season. I've been seeing that, like, there's been a new season. I, I haven't watched it. It is full of characters. I bet. Sometimes I need some trash. I totally get that. Mm-hmm. Fulfilling trash. Yeah. Especially because, like, there is, like, a interesting, like, sociological aspect of that, of, like, how do people behave in this situation? Yeah, it definitely is. Like, there's, an, uh, there's a twist that can kind of make it it has something different than like something like Big Brother or like we're just people in a normal. Chilling. Like, yeah. Yeah. But it's so funny because every time they talk about it, they call it the experiment uh-huh. instead of like the show. Yeah. Like, oh, well, when we were in the experiment and we fell in love with a wall between us and it's always the experiment and that <laughs> makes me laugh really yeah. hard. Oh, it's like my old job when they were like, they're not meetings, they're mm-hmm. ceremonies. I'm like, go fuck yourself. Yeah. Like, it's like, a meeting. You can call it what it is because we're not dumb. Yeah. We all know. We all know. Yeah. Exactly what's happening here. This is a meeting or a television show. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I get it. I get it. 
Uh, I haven't been watching too much besides those. I mean, that was Do a lot you of follow stuff. the Oscars at all? I don't. And here's the thing. I will always look it up like the next day. Yeah. And read about stuff the next day. And then I start watching the movies. Okay. But I think because they're so drama based. Yeah. I like dramas, but I have the mood has to hit for me to watch. Oh, for sure. It's yeah. Because that's an investment because a I have to put any ADHD tendencies aside and actually pay attention to said thing I'm watching. Yeah. And to be honest, that's very rare for me. And B, honestly, what helps me in those situations is usually watching with somebody because then you get to talk about it. Mm -hmm. I rarely watch movies with anybody. Mm -hmm. So if I'm watching stuff by myself, I'm going to usually generally choose something mindless or dumb. Yeah. Or funny. With the occasional, I'll throw in something random, but it's always something just random that I find. Yeah. Or it's going to be on the Discovery Plus network and probably mm-hmm. involve ghosts or murder. So okay. <laughs> I I do love the Discovery Plus. Yeah. For me, like it's I'm been HGTV and like some food shows. We watch very different Discovery Plus, but I love that. But that's the beauty of Discovery Plus. Yeah, it's everything. When I was on vacation... It was kind of our nightly ritual just to like go back to the room and watch whatever trash was on HGTV. Because mm-hmm. there's just so much shit on HGTV. There's a lot, yeah. It's the trifecta of like strong personalities, people to hate, and ooh, look at that interesting thing they did to the house. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I enjoy stuff like that. I don't seek it out. That's like definitely like in a hotel room and somebody else puts it on and then I'll watch it type thing yeah. for me. And that's kind of exactly what happened with me. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I get the entertainment of it, but yeah, I never sit down and seek it out. Yeah. Again, I'm usually looking for a ghost hunting show or something. Yeah, like yeah. It. We are actually sipping on our actual We are. You made today. a drink today. Yeah, it is a almost lavender French 75. I would say it's lavender. Well, I just I meant like it... almost proper French 75. Gotcha. Okay. I thought you were like, mm-hmm. it's almost lavender. I'm like, no, there's, there's lavender. In okay. It. There's definitely <laughs> lavender. But, you know, it's the middle of a, a weekend day, so this seemed like a proper thing. It and is. it kind of fits the vibe, we'll say. Okay. Of the story we're going to talk about. Yeah. So on that note, do you want to hear a story? I do. Good. Have you ever heard of Princess de Caraman Chimay? Can't say that I have. Have you ever heard of Clara Ward? I think so. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, I will say there is another well-known Clara Ward who was a singer. This is not the singer. I could also be confusing her with Clara Barton, the because I think they she was she's been on the Gilded Age a couple. She's a character in the Gilded Age. Okay, it is not her. She's found of the Red Cross, American. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, this is not her. her, Not her. Just the name Clara. You don't hear that often these days. No. But if you had lived in the Edwardian period, you would have. Uh, and you would not have been able to escape Claire Ward or Princess de Caraman Chimay because that's the same person. Okay. I have never seen them in the same place, so that no. makes sense. Yeah, yeah. She was basically all over gossip columns, postcards, cigarette boxes on two continents. Ooh, and bicontinental socialite. Very continental, bicontinental socialite. She was also known kind of as a scandalous socialite globally. And Did she a- show her ankles? We'll get to what okay, okay. was showing or not showing. 
And globally, the public simultaneously admired her as well as reviled her. Okay. But before we get to that, because we like to know where people come from, we're actually going to be starting our story with her father, who was the first millionaire in the state of Michigan. Okay. So Captain Eber, I haven't actually said his name out loud yet. Is it E-B-E-R? Yeah. It's either Eber or Eber. Okay. I'm going to go with Eber. That seems... Eber, Eber. I knew someone with that last name. I think they they went by Eber. Okay. Well, this is his first name. Oh. Yeah. Captain Eber Brock Ward was born in Ontario on December 25th, Christmas baby, Ooh. 1811. And he was probably the third of four children. He was an American citizen, though, as his parents were both from Vermont. They had moved to Canada shortly before his birth to try and avoid the pending War of 1812, but weren't totally successful in that. Mm-hmm. So when he was still a baby, they moved back to Vermont, where they remained until he was about six. Then in 1817, the family decided to move to Kentucky, but they stopped for a short time on the way in Pennsylvania as his mother grew ill, and then she eventually passed away there. Oh. Yeah. So his father decided to move them to Ohio instead. This was only for a short time before he moved the... He realized Ohio was trash. (laughs) Before he moved the family to Detroit in 1821. Okay. Around the age of 12 or 13, young Eber obtained a job out of Marine City, which is north. I heard of her. Yeah. Basically take 94 and keep going for a while. Yeah. And he was working as a cabin boy and deckhand on one of his uncle's ships because his uncle owned a fleet of ships. Okay. The vessel he worked on would travel up to Mackinac and back, moving goods back and forth. Okay. And his uncle Samuel was the leading shipbuilder in Marine City at the time. And this is where all of the region's shipbuilding was pretty much happening. Makes sense, based on where it's at. Yeah. And it might have been called something other than Marine City at the time. I saw something that indicated that, but not what it was called. So I don't know. <laughs> the city formerly known yes. as, or currently known as Marine yes. City. Yes. Uh, then in 1830, when Eber was 18 or 19, he was given a job by his uncle as a clerk at one of the warehouses. Okay. Eventually, Ward had enough money to invest in and become 25% owner of the ship, the General Harrison. Okay. Aye, aye. And by 1835, a few years later, he became the master of this vessel. So he operated it successfully, which led to his uncle partnering with him. And shortly after, in July of 1837, he went on to marry his first wife, Marielle Margaret McQueen. The couple went on to have seven children. Dang. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those numbers that fluctuated a bit, but seven. Yeah. According to like death records, I find, you know, that kind of stuff seemed. Yeah. The most accurate. So the shipping operation in Marine City worked well for a while, but then the family in 1850 decided to move operations to Detroit, which proved to be more successful. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Between the two of them, they built a fleet of 30 steamships, which traveled all over the Great Lakes region, delivering supplies. And their company, EB&S Ward Steamers, became the largest in the upper Mideast region of North America. This would eventually cause Eber to take on the nickname of Steamship King of the Great Lakes. Not super catchy, but no. go with it. I no. it. Yeah, it's better than nothing. It's always fun when a nickname is way longer than a real name. Right. <laughs> but Eber didn't stop with ships. He added another industry to his roster by acquiring timberlands along the Pier Marquette River near what is now known as Ludington. Okay. He I decided, heard of her too. Yeah. yeah. You're going to hear a lot of places and spaces. Okay. He decided to sit on this property, though, for a while to allow the timber to mature, basically. Makes sense. But his industries don't stop there. 
1853, he helped organize Eureka Iron and Steel Works with a group of investors. They purchased land from a former mayor of Detroit and a politician named John Biddle for $44,000, which in today's money would be over $1.6 million. Okay. It wasn't a bit of money. A bit of money? A bit of money. <laughs> and there's actually a road. Uh, I believe it's Fort Street or some, something turns into Biddle in Wyandotte. Okay. Biddle known fact. Biddle known fact. I'll stop. <laughs> no, no, I like it. You know, I love a pun. Yeah. You know, it's my favorite. So at the time of the purchase, the land contained Biddle's estate, which he had named Wyandotte after the Native American people who had once lived there some of whom were still in the area in 1836 when he acquired the land. This name as it had, it would stick around as eventually Eber and his investors developed the whole area into what is now known as the city of Wyandotte. Makes sense. Yes. Eber's general manager who ran the Eureka Steel Company and his other project, Wyandotte Rolling Mills, John S. Van Alstein, laid out the plans for a city. And this plan was often called the Philadelphia Plan because it, Laid out streets with a north, with south, east, west grid with cream cheese on top of it. Yes. So the city would be granted a charter by 18. This is just a little side journey. Yeah. Because it was there. The city would be granted a charter by 1866. And a few short years later in the 1870s, Ward also established shipbuilding in the city. In Wyandotte? Mm-hmm. Is there a river in Wyandotte? Is there water? The Detroit River. Okay. Wyandotte's. I couldn't, if you pointed to a hand, I couldn't point Wyandotte to the hand. We definitely talked about Wyandotte like six episodes ago. Yes. Yes. That was a very sad story. We don't yeah. need to go back. But yeah, there was shipbuilding in the city of Wyandotte. So back to Eureka Iron and Steelworks, though. This location was proven to be a good choice due to its location to the Detroit River. Okay. Thus making it ideal for use in the steel industry. So... They could bring iron ore from the UP down and limestone from other parts of the state very easily. Mm -hmm. In 1864, the company made the first commercial steel product produced in the U.S. using what was called the Bessemer process. Mm -hmm. Little side journey. Okay. So Ward had been greatly interested in the first experiments of the Bessemer converter. This was basically the first inexpensive industrial process to mass produce steel from molten pig iron. So this process removed the impurities from iron through oxidation with air being blown through the molten iron. The process was not without its own bit of scandal, though. You see, it was first patented in England by Henry Bessemer in 1856. But there was also a patent granted in the U.S. in 1857 to a man named William Kelly. Kelly claimed to have independently discovered the same process in 1851 at his Edieville Ironworks and this became a bit of a controversy. Of I bet, who, like I yeah, can only imagine like around that time when like news didn't travel very fast. So it's like I invented this thing. Well, I also invented this thing, you know. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about like a essentially a scientific process too, which, right? It's not like I invented the T-shirt. It's like I invented this way to make steel or a whatever. A better way to make it, yeah. Yeah. So also in 1857, due to his interest. In the process, Ward partnered with a man named Zoheath Durfee to try and set up operations using the process. Okay. Durfee then traveled to Europe to try and acquire the rights to the Bessemer process to no avail. While he was gone, though, Ward invited his cousin William Durfee to come and experiment while building a blast furnace in Wyandotte to manufacture pneumatic steel using the process. Okay. So by May of 1862, Kelly 
the man who created the process in America, mm-hmm. set up a steel plant in Wyandotte as well. And by 1863, the Kelly Pneumatic Process Company was formed by all of the men bringing on some investors. Okay. This resulted in 1865 with the first Bessemer steel being produced in the nation, thusly impacting industry with what was just much more of a cost-effective process. Yeah. Because it was like way faster. Yeah. This process was heavily used until 1968 when the basic oxygen process was discovered to offer better control of the final chemistry of the steel. Because I guess the Bessemer process was kind of actually so fast that there was like no quality control that could be done during it. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So it was actually better to slow it down because you, you can control, control the final product yeah, yeah. better. Yeah. That's at least and my steel something you kind of want to know how it's going to behave with how structural we yes, use steel. These. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that was the big the big thing. Yeah. So the Kelly Pneumatic Process Company merged with a Bessemer factory in New York in 1866, and they called themselves Pneumatic Steel Association. The company then went on to license franchises to prospective Bessemer steelmakers who were also faced to pay royalties on every ton of steel they produced using the process. That's crazy. Yes. The Detroit region then became a major center of steel production with a large impact on the creation of steel used for home heating stoves. Okay. Eureka Ironworks prospered through the late 19th century, but due to the shortage of raw materials closed in 1892. Okay. So back to Ward. That was just a look at him making money again. Making that coin. Mm -hmm. On top of all of his success in 1860, he was also elected president of the Pair Marquette Railroad Company. Okay. So railroad guy now too. And that was big money back in the day, as I'm learning from the Gilded Age, (laughs) a very factual show. Before we start recording, you mentioned you were watching all these period pieces. Yeah. And I was like, "Mm, you're in the right time period for the story. It's crazy how big railroads were in this country Mm -hmm. and how they're nothing now. I mean, they're not nothing. But just like compared to other countries where you could like, I guess like for commercial travel, like if I wanted to get to California, I'm not going to take a train. No, unless you're doing it purposely. Right. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. Which is a bummer. Yeah. Like but even at this fun. time, too, I do feel like a lot of train use was for goods and not No, for sure. Yeah. Like, it was kind of fancy, I think, to go on train. Ooh, fancy. Fancy. So, just to recap on him. Now, he's yeah. a shipbuilder, timberland owner, steel mill owner, rail and railroad president. We haven't heard about the timberlands in a second, though. He has not put out music in a long time. <laughs> Uh, something about shoes jokes about shoes <laughs> i do have a pair of his boots oh, his good. hiking boots right, good. i love them yeah i've heard they're very um durable they nice. are yeah we stand not sponsored <laughs> so by 1869 he was carrying logging operations in lake county through agents so it was kind of a little hands-off but like kind of happening in the background yeah and it's in this year that he purchased an additional seventy thousand acres in modern day Ludington. Okay. He then set his sights on extending his railroad to the area to operate mills. Yeah. More mills. However, James Ludington stalled these negotiations as he owned many of the sawmills in the area and refused to sell them at any price as he feared Ward would basically monopolize the industry there. A legitimate fear for the time. Mm -hmm. And he was basically hoping that his stalemating on selling and whatever would eventually lead Ward to sell his land for cheap. Uh-huh. Like, oh, it's not even worth it for the yeah. bit I have out there. That's not what happened. 
So eventually Ward got word that Ludington had actually gone and cut down some of his timber from his land up north. Oh, shit. Ward was not pleased, but he decided to just sit on this information for a bit. That is until Ludington came down to Detroit on business. And then Ward had him arrested and held in Wayne County Jail. He got a judgment against Ludington for $650,000, 12.7 million today, I should say, for theft and trespassing. Ludington shortly after suffered a stroke, though, and in 1869, his company, the Pear Marquette Lumber Company, would go on to settle with Ward in an agreement. Damn. So basically he Played got him. Yeah. He got land. Yeah. In 1869, Ward's first wife passed, and two months later, he married his second wife. You know, he waited as long as he could. Mm -hmm. We'll also, we'll talk about her passing a little more, but. I feel like back in those days, too, it's like, well, I need another woman to take care of the house. Let's get this done. We'll talk more about what actually transpired there. Okay, I'm intrigued. Mm -hmm. I don't have a lot of details, but I have some more details, but kind of, there's, there's a. There's more than meets the eye. Yeah. Of the ear in this case. So Catherine Lyon, this, uh, who also happened to be the niece of U.S. Senator Lucius Lyon. Any relation to the Lions Club or whatever? The Lion? I do not know. Okay. Maybe South Lion. I don't Ooh. know. Ooh. Spelled like that. And this was his second marriage and her third. Dang. Okay. Through the next four years, they went on to have two children. Okay. And back to, he's got all this land now too. We're going to put his family in hold. Yeah. Which... I think it's what he was doing. He could now build sawmills in the Paramarquette region, as mentioned. And in 1870, so he didn't waste much time, he built what he called the North Mill. And the new sawmill cost about $60,000 to build, $1.2 million today. Dang. And he could facilitate cutting $100,000 of board feet per day, which is just That's like a, lot. a measurement, but it's kind of what you think it would be. Yeah. yeah. He didn't stop there, though. He purchased more land and added a storage warehouse and a year later built what came to be known as South Mill, which would go on to be considered the best sawmill in the U.S. Interesting. Okay. So basically he took over the production of wood. Yeah. That's where he stopped. Just kidding. No, I was about to say like, because he wasn't the only lumber baron, but it kind of sounds like he's got the biggest operation right now. Because I'm wondering where, like, where Whitney fits in. Because like, wasn't Whitney a lumber baron? He was, but I think his was in the he UP. He was later. Because Paramarquette oh. is like the west side of the state, north on the west side of the state, like below Traverse City. Is it? Mm-hmm. Okay. I looked it up today, but I would, I've been to Ludington like once. Okay. I don't. I can't tell you exactly where it's sandwiched. I'm yeah, not yeah. That, but like, it's definitely. Okay. It's the Lower Peninsula. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I know with the word Marquette, you think it's up by actual Marquette. Yeah. No, there's um something Marquette, something forest on the I west side of the state. I think he's Catholic something or other. Because, again, mm-hmm. I remember a pure Marquette room in the church. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I have random flashbacks to room names in churches, and I'm realizing now that they were all people that I did <laughs> not know. So, like I said, he didn't stop. In 1870, he also ventured into silver mining. When he, along with a group of investors, bought a 14-acre island off the north shore of Lake Superior in Thunder Bay. Mm-hmm. Is it Iowa Isle? I don't or, know what, I don't know. It oh, didn't okay. say the the island name. Yeah. I don't think so, though, because I think Isle Royale's bigger. I'm pretty sure I just called it Island Royale. <laughs> Isle Royale. Yeah, I don't know the acreage, but like 14 is a decent amount, but I, it's not. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, the group 
would go on to form the Silver Islet Mining Company. So maybe it's called Silver Islet. I don't know. Yeah. This purchase proved to be quite prosperous as the island, upon further investigation, was shown to contain a 70-foot ring of high-quality silver. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the first three weeks of operating would yield $100,000 worth of silver, so about $2,047,000 worth of silver today. Dang. Mm -hmm. And that's in three weeks. That's not the whole... Yeah, no, that's a crazy amount for three weeks. Mm Mm-hmm. So on January 2nd, 1875, Ward suffered and died of a stroke. Oh. While it's hard to say exactly how much he left, there's some conflicting sources. He left roughly $6 million behind to his current wife at the time and two children. What happened to all this stuff? And you're just like, fuck them? Their mom's dead? We'll get to that in a second. Damn. So $153 million okay. is what was left. Wow. Uh, amongst his assets was real estate, a shipping fleet, a stock in the Wyandotte Mill, stock in the Chicago Rolling Mill, and the Milwaukee Rolling Mill. So he also had stock in other mills, too, yeah. which is interesting. Yeah. So his assets were a bit shady, though, and it would later be reported that there wasn't enough to cover costs without selling some of it, including his Fort Street mansion. Okay. But his body was laid down at Elmwood in the Ward family plot. Okay. So his death actually caused a ripple across the country due to his involvement in basically every fucking industry. Yeah. He was fingering a lot of pies, which is such a weird expression. It's gross. Yeah. Don't put your fingers by pie. No, I don't want to eat it after that. Right. But now I do want pie. But with a fork. What kind of pie? Well, okay. I stopped at the store before this and I did see a cherry pie look good. That's not my go-to, but like that could be good. Generally speaking, though... I'm not like a fruit pie person. Okay. I'm a pumpkin or pecan or like a French silk pie person. Okay. Or key lime. I'm weirdly craving like a blueberry pie, but I think it's because I was looking up a recipe for blueberry blintzes yesterday. That'll do it. Yeah. I'll do it. I do love a blintz. Oh, that right. I like with fruit. That's yeah. a fruit thing. So anyway, his death rippled across the country. Yeah. <laughs> the inner ocean of Chicago ran... Nor is the loss of so justly distinguished a citizen confide to his own city and state. Through his great enterprises, his name has become familiar to the Northwest and indeed to all the land. He belonged to the whole country. I love the way they used to write back in the day. He was known across the land. Mm-hmm. They went on to also say, His death occurring at a time of great industrial prostration is a calamity which will be mourned in every manufacturing center of the United States. That's a little dramatic, but okay. However. Yes. He wasn't viewed this favorably by everyone. I can't imagine he was a universally popular figure. David Ward, his cousin, would later go on to write an autobiography of himself which espoused many less savory opinions and shed more light onto Eber was in his actual personal life. Okay. And business life too. Yeah. Uh, He described Eber as, quote, overbearing, egotistic, vainglorious, dishonest, tyrannical, vindictive, aggressive, energetic, selfish man, largely devoid of conscience. Damn. Yep. This autobiography also points out when then Eber's father passed, he left Eber close to a million dollars. Dang. So he did actually have like some startup yeah. situations. 
This inheritance neglected that of Eber's brothers and sisters, which there were many. Yeah. And some were living in poverty at the time. Damn. The strange thing is when Eber's father grew ill, Eber placed guards at the doors outside of his house and wouldn't allow any family members in with the exception of one of his sisters, Emily. So it was his house or the house the father was in or both? I think it was his father's house, but I cannot answer that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, For sure. So possibly shady. Okay. David, the cousin, also stated that in 1862, he gave false accusations against his first wife. And that, with a combination of bribery, allowed him to obtain a bill of divorce, thus freeing him up to marry the almost two decades younger Kate Lyon. Wait, I thought his first wife died. She did. Okay. This oh, is where I'm confused. Mm-hmm. Did she die of natural causes or was it a little... Well, I'm not trying to... Ins- no. What he did instead, he had her committed. Even better. And then she died in psychiatric care in a, an asylum. Because it was the 1800s, they're probably like, you know, it's going to cure her psychosis, leeches and cutting off her legs. Mm-hmm. Based on this, because this is the only place I did see this, but it does come from his cousin's autobiography, which, I mean, cousins can also make shit up too, so I'm not saying it's oh, that. Oh, yeah. But I'm thinking what happened is that he had her committed, and I think he was going through divorce procedures possibly when he, she died. Yeah. That's what I'm getting from this, but I'm not, I can't 100%, you know, say yeah, that yeah. for sure. But it's weird. It's definitely weird. There was also probably some sort of adultery happening. Yeah. Very clear. I mean, he also married the next woman two months later. Yeah. So they're in all likelihood, and it is speculated that he was probably. Already seen her on the side. Mm-hmm. That being said, too, though, I mean, like she had been married a few times before yeah. as well. So I and I don't know you know, what her status or situations were. So, yeah. So uh, he made himself a lot of money. Yeah. He, you know that uh, he definitely had like a business mind, but just Michigan's first millionaire. <laughs> for better or worse. Yeah. So now we're going to talk about his children a little bit. I don't have updates on all of them, but we're going to go through the seven from the first marriage. I have updates on a couple. Uh-huh. So their names were, I believe, John, Henry, Elizabeth, Milton, Charles, Fred, and Mary. Possibly a Samuel. There might have, I don't know. So Elizabeth, who was probably his third child, was considered to be mentally incompetent, like labeled as such. Frederick, his sixth child, committed suicide, unfortunately. Mary, the youngest of that group of children, was labeled eccentric. What a label. Yes. I know it was like used, but also like yeah dumb yeah well one of his sons would actually also go on to be labeled eccentric but also deranged as well and eventually went bankrupt so yeah not great from a second marriage eber jr mm-hmm. went on to marry a woman named victorine what an interesting name i know the couple though victorine tangerine i know i kept having to check it i kept being like Victoria. And I was like, no, it's definitely Victor. Like I read that a couple places. Yeah. The couple divorced though in 1900, as Victorine claimed that Eber was captivated with her daughter, his stepdaughter, Blanche Heralt. Oof. Although his solution is he just eventually ran off with his wife's maid instead. Hey, I cool. mean, yeah. Cool, cool, cool. And now on to the queen of the gossip columns. And Eber's youngest child. Clara Ward. So Clara she's the Ward. second of the second batch. Yes. 
Yeah. She's the youngest child overall, too. Okay. She was less than two years old when her father died. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So as mentioned, his estate went to her mother, Catherine, her brother, and herself, leaving her step-siblings in the dust, as we mentioned. Rough. So having to manage all the enterprises was quite the task for her mother, and Catherine decided to team up with her brother, Thomas R. Lyons, to kind of take over all that. Her mother also quickly sold the house on Fort Street and moved to Canada, where she married a Canadian banker, who's also a millionaire, that she had met in New York. Okay. So there's not a lot about Clara's early, early years, but we're going to start getting into it when she's early teens. Okay. She was providing to be a bit of a wild child for her mother. Oh, no. She always had a boyfriend. She was constantly sneaking out to like parties and stuff. And she never wanted to be debuted. That's such an interesting concept. Cause like, mm-hmm. it's a big plot point in one of the, like one of the storylines in Gilded Age of like, is she's ready to be debuted? No, she's not. Yeah. And it's just like a bitch. Just let her, let her live her life. Mm-hmm. Well, and this is interesting too. Cause like their wealth goes back a little bit, but this family's wealth doesn't necessarily, it's not, there's a little bit of generational wealth, but most of it's not. So there's like middle-aged money. It's not old money. It's mm-hmm. not new money. There's still though, we're considered from everything I read uh nouveau riche okay. for the time too. But I'm sure that also made it like important to her mother to debut her. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't know. It, it is a very weird, it's a very strange thing to think about. Cause yeah. I cannot imagine. Right. I was never debuted. I know that. Me neither. Mm-mm. My mom just like sent me on the school bus and was like, come back after school. Right. <laughs> That's you going out into the world. Right. So around this time, Clara was sent away to finishing school. The first one being in London. Okay. Where she was kicked out. Another interesting concept of finishing school. Mm-hmm. And to just add to that, she was not kicked out of one finishing school in England. She was kicked out of Two finishing schools in England. Work. So her mother grew tired of Canada and decided to move herself to Paris to set up a salon, which I'm not. It said salon, and I'm thinking it's probably like the art salon, not the hair salon, but it could be the hair salon. I have no idea. Or like, wasn't the kind of salon just, I don't, am I just thinking saloon because they're so close of like kind of like a bar? I've never heard that. I think okay. you are thinking so salon style um, art is like where the, Art is like everywhere on the wall. Okay. Because salon also means like living room kind of. Okay. Maybe that's where I was going to I believe. I, I didn't look into this for right now, but yeah. that's where my brain's going. Yeah. So anyway, she was very successful though with the aristocracy. Love that for her. So Clara joined her for a bit, but her mother decided to, fin- to send her away to a third finishing school in Paris. Third tries the charm. Well, she swiftly went missing from the school, but was found about three weeks later in the attic room of a penniless student, which I wrote it because I was like, that's the only information I have. But yep. <laughs> what a weird way to put it. Yeah. So this is when her mother decided to go nun on her ass and send her away to um, a convent. live with some nuns. Yeah. How do you solve a problem like Clara? <laughs> send her to a convent. Mm-hmm. But that only lasted about nine weeks as they could not put up with her terrible behavior. They couldn't catch the cloud and put her down. They could not. So she returned to her mother and her mother turned her intentions towards getting Clara married, basically. 
I don't know what to do with you anymore, child. You're let's, 60. She's 16 let's find at this a man, point. Yeah, let's find a man so you could be his problem. Kind of. And also, she was growing a little worried about it, too, because her behavior was known in the socialite community. Yeah. And again, they were semi-considered nouveau riche, so she didn't think she was going to be able to find, like, an American man for her that would take her. Yeah. So this is when Clara visits the opera in Nice, France. 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 In Nice, France, where they knew an eligible bachelor, the Prince de Chimay, would be in attendance. Ooh. Everyone at the opera noticed her. And soon the press would start calling her the most beautiful girl in Europe. She what, was what a, what a title. Really known for her looks. I have a ton of photos to show you. I'm very Can't excited. Wait. And I kind of love it too because she was especially when she got a little bit older, she was she was a decently curvy girl. She had love an hourglass that. going on. And I just, I love it. Yeah. So after that, the prince made arrangements via his sister to extend a marriage proposal to her after they met at the opera. How weird. It's it's how it worked, though, in the aristocracy, basically. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah. Just commenting. It's still weird. It's very weird. I'm not even sure. I can't even tell you that they t- spoke at the opera, to be honest, in all honesty. It might have been a like, hey, you there saw her she across is. The room. I, but I think it was more word of mouth. Yeah. Like, there's the the prince guy who's looking to wife up. There's that young girl. She's available and rich. Yeah. Which we'll get to why that's important. So, Clara. Was the pin- prince broke de broke? Okay. We'll get to that in a moment. So Clara really made headlines when in 1890 she married Belgian dignitary, and I'm going to say his full name once and once only, Marie-Joseph Anatole Elie de Riquette et de Caravan, 19th Prince de Chimay, a.k.a. Joseph de Caraman Chimay. Gesundheit. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I will mostly call him either <laughs> Prince de Chimay Prince. or Prince Joseph, because okay. that's all I can do. PJ. Yeah. Prince Joseph. Uh, so the prince was a prince, but he was more prince in the title sense. Okay. Not in the next for the throne sense. Yeah. But he was still a prince nonetheless. Still a European prince. Yeah. Title. He was also known as a professional fencer. He had competed in the 1900 Olympics in Paris. Love it. Uh, he did not win a medal. Damn. And at age 31... He was almost double the age of his young 16-year-old bride-to-be. Yeah. But the marriage could really be thought of more as an advantageous uh, transaction than love. You see, at the time, a lot of royal aristocracy in Europe was going bankrupt. Yeah. With their chateaus and castles falling into disrepair. And Joseph... Prince Joseph was amongst those who had little to no capital of his own. He was broke to broke. Yes, he was very broke to broke. He was also not attractive. Really had like no wonderful features about him. Except for fencing, apparently. No, I don't think even anybody cared about the fencing because he didn't. He didn't win. No. No. And Clara happened to come with basically a two and a half million dollar dowry. So over $77 million in today's money. Oh, dowries. What? Mm-hmm. Girl, the world, 1800s were wild. Mm-hmm. Well, and when I mean, I like, th- that's dowry goes much further than that, but just kind of like, I'm just realizing throughout all these period pieces and the story, mm-hmm. 
the eight, late 1800s are rotted. Well, and this one's a little different too, because it wasn't necessarily. I said dowry because one of the resources I was reading dowry. Yeah. But it was really more of a clause in her father's will that she had to get married to get, get her this money. Like a trust. Yes. Yeah. That being said, it wasn't just the, they weren't they weren't just paying him. Yeah. But it was joint money. Yeah. At that, that makes, point. Okay. I mean, she still had some control over it. So I said dowry, but like really, yeah, it was more of like a trust. Okay. That would benefit him though. Yeah. This was also combined with her $50,000 a year allowance, which is like $1.2 to $1.5 million in today's money okay. a year for just being Existing. Clara. Yep. This was actually pretty common in those days, though. It wasn't necessarily common for an American to become a princess. Yeah. Uh, there were um, American women who had definitely like married into the aristocracy of Europe before this. Yeah. I don't think there was a lot of technical quote unquote princesses, though. So it was a big deal. And it did make a lot of headlines and made Americans, you know, really curious and like wanting to know more. Like, yeah, ooh, la, la. I mean, we still do that today. I think it's just because we've never had like a te- we've never technically had any kind of royals. So, like, yeah, we're so fascinated by the concept. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. Like, I feel like we care more about the English monarchy than the English do. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, and I mean, like this did happen and, and it happened in different like levels of the aristocracy too. Yeah. you know, sometimes you'd be a duchess or, you know, all of I count. Yes, exactly. And I don't know the answer. A marquee. Which is not just a sign of a theater, apparently. Mm-hmm. And it was a lot of American like socialites with cash. Yeah. And it was basically cash for class. Yeah. So the pair had little in common. Uh, Prince, I'm shocked. <laughs> I know. Prince Joseph spent a lot of his time like out hunting. But they were married May 19th, 1890 in Paris. And she officially started going by Clara Princess of Chimay. Okay. The newly married couple lived at Chateau Chimay. Okay. The house or the lineage, essentially. Yeah. Near Hainaut, Hainaut, Belgium. Sure. Near the French border. Yeah. I tried. The chateau, though, had fallen into quite disrepair, and Clara ended up spending $300,000, so about $9 million today, trying to bring the house back up to speed. Dang. In addition to this, she also settled her new husband, Joseph's, $100,000 of debt. Damn. Mm-hmm. couple went on to have two children in the next, I believe it was like four years or something. First being Marie and... Anatole Chatterine Elizabeth, Contesse de Caraman Chimay in 1891. Hey, thank you. And Joseph Marie Pierre Anatole Alphonse de Riquette in 1894. I'll have two. Yeah. Life at the Chateau actually pretty much bored Clara. I she can imagine. Like, I need to be out and doing stuff. It's even rumored that for fun, and I don't. This is a rumor, but that she would throw gold coins from the Chateau's windows to watch locals come and fight for them. Not shocked. Yeah. But she also spent her time gazing towards other men. Again, not shocked. Her husband's twice her age and not a looker. Oh, my God. In all likelihood, Joseph probably knew about this, but decided to turn a blind eye because... Of course, because the money. The money. and also broke to broke. And also just like the scandal of it. Yeah, that too. You know, he didn't want to like shake any right. feathers in this aristocracy. Right. And I mean, 
how many times do we hear that story? Oh, yeah. countless. But this is until rumors of an affair between King Leopold II and Princess Clara began to circulate. The king wasn't his father, was it? Uh, cousin, I think. Okay. I think it was a cousin. I didn't write that down. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely not father. Okay. Related, but not. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think that's why he would never be like, it, like it would take so long for him to be. Right. Or something. He's kind of, yeah. A cousin, like the whole, like a whole branch of the family has to die for it to come to you. Yeah. I don't know, but. Whatever. Not yeah. father. This is not a Belgian mm-hmm. monarchy podcast. Oh. The queen had noticed that her husband was noticing Princess Clara. Yeah. And she was not pleased with this infatuation at all. Really? (laughs) So things got a little bit rocky and it would later be noted in an excerpt from Clara's diary that read, quote, I am going to quit the prince for a fear of a scandal, perhaps of a tragedy. Ooh. So Princess Clara knew that like, mm -mm, mm-mm. Yeah. But despite this, the prince and princess actually went out often. Dinner, clubs, you know, whatever. Often in Paris. I think that was probably the closest, like, Metropolitan area. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And it had many of their favorite restaurants and clubs. They were known very well. And at the time, a very well-known chef named Chef Escoffier named dishes after Clara, specifically oufs a la chamay and poulard chamay. So egg chamay and... Chicken chimay. I was going to say Pilar. I think that's chicken. Mm-hmm. And oofs is eggs. That makes sense. Oof. 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 So shortly after the birth of their second child, in November of 1896, they were out at one of these establishments. Okay. A nightclub. So while they were dining or sipping whatever they were doing on this particular night, yeah. a Hungarian violinist named Rigo Janszi was playing... What was referred to at the time as gypsy music. I'm not trying to put it out there, but that's the reference. Yep. And Rigo was actually his family. This is just interesting to me. Rigo yeah. was actually his family name, which translated to Blackbird with John Shee being his given name, uh, kind of a Roma form of Johnny. Okay. Clara was immediately entranced and delighted by Rigo. Just like, oh, look at that violinist. Yeah. Clara and Rigo would start to meet in a series of secret meetings over the next few nights. Just to talk. And just 10 short days after that, the two ran away together. Just a to talk. scandal, I Yes. The story was like literally all over the Call universe. Shonda Rhimes that there's been a scandal. It was all that anybody could talk about. Oh, I bet. Legitimately. So we're talking, that's November. December 24th of 1896, the Ludington Record reported about the elopement with a woodcut illustration of Ward and the headline, quote, Gone with Gypsy. <laughs> it was also reported that the prince had already started court procedures to divorce his now runaway wife. Understandably yes. so. So Rigo and Clara continued to travel across Europe before ending up in his mother's cabin in Hungary. And everyone was basically watching their every move. In Budapest, a dessert was created and called Rigo Janchi in commemoration of the whole affair. Interesting. And just because we are food people, this dessert is basically a cube-shaped dessert that consists of two pieces of chocolate sponge with a layer of chocolate cream and a layer of apricot preserves in between. Often parts of it are infused with rum or whiskey and a chocolate ganache on top. Oh, yum. It's very like decadent and savory and like a little sultry and, you know. Yeah. A little bit bad. Yeah. 
So by January 1897, the prince and princess were officially divorced. Full custody of the children was given to Prince de Chimay. And she did have to, I don't know how much, but she did have to pay some sort of alimony to him for the children, basically. Again, it makes sense. She had the money Mm -hmm. because he was, again, broke to broke. Yeah. She was given monthly visitation rights as long as a member of the de Caramon family was also in attendance. Okay. So Rigo and her had what sounds like a very passionate and somewhat intense love affair and became the it couple. Just everyone curious about them. Desserts named after them. Mm -hmm. Newspapers. Mm -hmm. Club. Mm -hmm. Another club. Often they require protection from crowds by police. Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. And artist Henri Toulouse-Lautrec. I heard of her. Yeah. Made a lithograph of Clara and Rigo in 1897, calling it Idile. I'm trying Prince BCA. Sure. So Clara's divorce made it possible for Clara to marry Rigo. Okay. The couple married, then moved to Egypt, where Clara taught her new hubby how to read and write as he had been previously illiterate. Okay. She also decided to give him all the gifts, all the lavish gifts she could. It was said that she gifted him a $5,000 violin and a casket of jewels. A casket. Interesting. And he got an allowance of $500 a month. So about $17,000 today's money a month. Manageable. Mm -hmm. You live off that. Especially when somebody's buying stuff for you too. Right. He's not paying rent. Uh Uh-uh. I mean, it would take him like two months to buy a car. I'm just saying. Yeah. Like just buy a car. Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) She also bought the mountain in Hungary where his mother's cabin sat to gift it to them. Uh, it's reported that she brought, oh, bought Rigo a zoo filled with animals, exotic animals. Interesting. Okay. Some sources say that she bought him a white marble palace on the Nile. I only read that in one space, but let's just throw it in there. Sure. An Italian architect designed stables for 16 black Arabian horses, I believe at this marble palace. Uh-huh. The stables were more ornate than Fifth Avenue palaces in New York. Interesting. They were cleansed by a marble sluiceway lined with silver. So just like all the nicest materials. Bougie, bougie, bougie. It's also, and I love this part. It's also possible that while they were like staying in Egypt, she commissioned for a well-known tattoo artist named Tom Riley to give her a tattoo of a snake like that wraps around one of her arms. But this is also a time when you don't see the skin a lot. So like, yeah, but it wasn't as big a deal because everyone was covered head to neck to toe. mm -hmm. But there is at least a photograph representation that I have yeah. of what the tattoo would have looked like. I don't know if it's actually a photograph of her arm or if it's just like a, yeah. some, I don't know, but it's kind of cool. I actually really like it. Yeah. She also had him, the, the tattoo artist tint her lips and cheeks as it was the latest in fashion Vogue at the time. So she was probably the first person to get tattooed makeup. Maybe. Well, well no, I mean, it was in Vogue at the time. So I okay. think it's just like one of those things people didn't talk about. I think they probably just did it. They're like, I'm sick for a week. I can't see anybody. Right. I'm not in recovery. Couldn't possibly. <laughs> I'm sick. I can't imagine tattooed makeup just because like, what if like you get something super trendy now and then it's like, oh, I'm stuck with this cat eye the rest of my life. Oh, yeah. No, I would never do a tattoo makeup. If you get a tattoo and like your cha- your your thing changes about tattoo, it's different. Yeah. It's not your everyday thing. Thing. You know what I mean? Like tattoos are in places and like. Right. I don't know. Yeah, but I would never do the makeup. I mean, I it's in general, tattoo. it's a face tat. 
I would never face tats are always, you know, a choice. They are a choice. If people want to make them, I'm fine with it. Yeah. It's, it's not my cup of tea and I will never. Yeah. Not going to yuck it, your yum, like, but it's not for me. Yeah. Do what you want to do. As long as, as long as you're not hurting somebody else, I'm cool with it. Right. This woman just spends money, right? Like she just, she spends money. Of course. And she's, she's always been able to. Sometimes there were, you know, money woes, but she, her family. Yeah. But after dwindling away her fortune, because she's just eking money out. Meanwhile, the, cu- the first seven children are like, <laughs> yeah. The couple move back to Paris where she devised a way to make money. Okay. This is when she created Post Plastiques. Figurines? This was a stage show in which she would most scandalously dress in a head-to-toe nude-colored bodysuit and pose in very statuesque manner for about three minutes, often while Rigo would play on his violin in the background. It's like early burlesque almost. Mm-hmm. And then a curtain would basically be put up in some manner while she changed the accessories, got into a new pose, and the next three-minute pose would happen. Interesting. This was scandalous AF. And I bet. Earlier when I was talking about her being a social life, I almost was like the Kardashian of, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But then I got into the skin suit and I was like, actually it's the, too accurate. I can't even make that was, joke anymore. Right. She was Kardashian before Kardashian yeah. was Kardashian. I mean, like her skin suit wasn't as shiny, but yeah, just very interesting to me. Yeah. She broke the newspapers over time. Uh-huh. Yeah. So the scandalous show ran at places like the Moulin Rouge. I heard of her. I was waiting for you to say that. <laughs> and the Follies Bergeret, which was a well-known music or cabaret music hall. Okay. Uh, and just venues around Paris, but also in other cities and places as well. Yeah. So one London paper explained the performance like this. Quote. Something in white flashed between us and the semi-darkness. I saw that it was the ex-princess de Chimay Caraman, better known to the world at large as Clara Ward. Her beauty was heightened by a loose clinging dress, which simply blazed with costly jewels. Then she began her dance to weird, barbaric music, softly, lightly, with a voluptuous, sensuous charm, her feet keeping time to the fantastic measure. There was dead silence throughout the crowded theater. Suddenly, a man sprang on stage and in a loud voice declared, I forbid this performance in the name of the law. <laughs> so, uh, needless to say, Post Plastiques uh, was a little controversial. Ooh. Some people loved it, some people not. Risque. Yes. Even. Her ex-husband did not love it. The prince begged authorities to put a stop to the performance. Think about the children. Just don't let the children in. I know, I know. On top of this, she used her smart smart prowess to make a small fortune through a series of postcards of hers, often in post plastique. Postcards, man. She made a deal with a postcard company in which she would make 20% of the profit and they would make 80% of the profit if they footed the bill to set up the photo shoots. Okay. The deal would go on to make her over $100,000, which is about $3 million today. First OnlyFans. <laughs> And her photograph was actually banished from Germany by the last German emperor, Kaiser Wilhelm II, because her beauty was, quote unquote, disturbing. Ooh. Or basically, he didn't know what to do with sexuality. Yeah. Yeah. 
in addition to this, there was a well-known image of her on a bicycle with her left leg kind of like thrown over the seat, like, like improper. Yeah. Uh, and a cigarette in her mouth that was used on cigarette packages. Love it. So things were not all rainbow, the rainbows for the couple though. I can't imagine. Yeah. Oftentimes when there's like a fiery start, fire, yeah. there's a lot of fire. We'll just say that. Yeah. To make money. In addition to all of this, Clara was also offering private performances for money. Ooh. What that means, I don't know, but Rigo was not cool with it. I can imagine. And it was rumored that people started to hear the couple kind of having very large, loud arguments behind closed doors. The couple would go on to divorce in 1904 when it, it was possibly discovered that Clara was cheating on Rigo with her soon-to-be next husband. Okay. Husband number three, third time is the charm, just like boarding school. Mm-hmm. So Rigo would later say the following to a Kansas City newspaper where Rigo John she actually lived later in life. Out of all the places. Quote. All my world was in my violin until I saw her. She was the most beautiful woman in Europe. Kings loved her. She turned away from King Leopold to smile at me. He went on to say. Ten days later, like gypsies, we stole from her palace in the dead of night. I took her to my mother's hut in the mountain near Pekhozd, where I was born. We had pictures of each other tattooed on our left arms, nearest our heart. Uh-huh. But it is interesting because it seems like they had a very fiery end. Yeah. But it seems like in the end, he kind of can at least look back on it as like a tornado of love that it was. And sometimes that happens. A, yeah. Sometimes like all the passion is there, but it's just not a good... Yeah. Situation or healthy situation. And yeah. That sucks, but it's how it be sometimes. Absolutely. Um, so as stated, in 1904, Clara moved on to her next husband. A few discrepancies on his name, but we're going to go with Pepino Ricciardo. Uh, he was a Spanish man who she had met when he was her waiter on a train. Work. And they would be married in 1904. This, well, as Claire would go on to tell neurologist Dr. Hughes later. Later, I joined Rigo in London and returned with him to Paris. There I told him the whole truth. Rigo is a good person, kind man. And after the first shock of the news, I was not afraid of any violence from him. But I would not like him to meet Giuseppe while he is still laboring under the strain of the separation, especially if he has been drinking. Because Rigo is so powerful, and my Giuseppe is not strong. Interesting, yeah. Interesting. And this is where I get a little confused, because she's calling him Giuseppe, and I'm not sure if that was, like, another name this man had. Or, like, a nickname she had for him. She was like, your name is Giuseppe now. Yeah. And then this marriage lasted 80 years. 80? No, it didn't last at all, actually. I'm sorry. I just, there's been so many short, I just needed. For sure. You had Uh, to get me once. So, I, yeah, I saved it, too. Yeah. I saved it when you weren't expecting it. I was just like, that's a long time. No, this marriage did not last. So. I was like, damn, she made it to like 90s then. <laughs> it was a few years, though. And, you know, they got married in 1904. And I believe they filed for some sources state that he filed for divorce in 1911 when he discovered she was having an affair with either their butler or a chauffeur. She did marry one more time, though. Fourth time's a charm. Yeah. 
It's very confusing, too, because some sources say that she married three times. Some say four. Uh-huh. And then I saw a fifth name of a man in there, too. She was married a lot. Yeah. Always for love, though. Well, minus minus the first one. But after yeah. that, it seemed like she was always. Yeah. So her final marriage was to possibly station manager of an Italian railroad that helped visitors visit Mount Vesuvius. Interesting place. Okay. Yeah. His name was Signore Casalota. And some places, like I said, there's little discrepancies. Refer to her, report her fourth husband to be Albino Tachabato, a wounded World War I vet in Italy. Sure. So she was married to somebody and it was in Italy. Her family actually wouldn't even know of her final marriage until her death, though. Neurologist Dr. Hughes again quoted Clara saying the following when commenting on this husband. He had interviewed her for yeah. a book. He was not exactly a ticket agent. He was only a station master at Naples. Kiss me, my master. And we met most romantically. It was at the foot of Mount Vesuvius, but it was I who was the volcano. Okay, says. <laughs> my heart took fire at the sight of Joseph. The conflagration was mutual, wasn't it, Joseph? He does not speak English, nor even French very well, or he would tell you himself. Wouldn't you, Giuseppe? Okay. Not sure who was in the room at this point um, or why she was referring back to the prince, but. Yeah. I think she was a little over the top, but I'm here for that. She could have been diagnosed as eccentric. <laughs> yes. So 18 months though after the couple married, Clara passed away, probably from pneumonia in Padau, Italy, December 9th, 1916. It was put on Signore Casalota to notify her estranged family back in Michigan. Uh, her mother at some point had disinherited her during all the turmoil of Can't the Rigo years, I think. Yeah. So they weren't talking, unfortunately, but she And her left. mother moved back to Michigan. I think so. I had. Yeah. Again, this is the only mention of her mother being back in Michigan. Okay. And they became estranged. So. Yeah. Yeah. Clara left behind a $1.2 million estate, so about $31 million today. Dang. And unfortunately for Casalota, her final husband, she hadn't updated her will since the third marriage. Ooh. So her estates were actually divided into trust funds left for her two children and a sum of money to her third husband and a small portion sent to a cousin in Chicago. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Rumors did circle that she died a pauper, but this was not true. Uh -huh. The American consul at Venice dispelled it immediately, citing that in her final days, she was staying at the very nice hotel Stella Doro and had an expert team of physicians attending to her and adding that her funeral was quite elaborate and costly. Okay. Three years after Clara's death, her first husband, Prince de Chimay, uh -huh. remarried. So he waited like decades to remarry, Damn. which is interesting because he was also like older than her. Yeah. yeah. This time, he went on to marry a younger woman uh -huh. who at the time of his wedding to Clara would have only been a couple months old. Oh, shit. Okay. Cradle Robin. Yeah. There isn't much about her, the two children she left behind. Her daughter went on to marry someone, and her son unfortunately passed at the young age of 25. Mm. Her ex-husband, Rigo, would go on to move to New York City and eventually Kansas City, and he would marry six more times in his life. Dang. Mm-hmm. Her legacy leaves behind a few interesting influences, though. Marcel Proust is in The Writer. Okay. Was quite fond of her. 
And, you know, he wrote some nice things about her. And it is said that he even based a character in his book In Search of Lost Time on her Mm -hmm. with another character actually being based on her first sister-in-law. Okay. There was also a character named Simone Pistache, played by Shirley MacLaine in the film version of Cole Porter's musical Can Can, based on Clara. And this is pretty evident when the film set in 1896 Paris shows the character of Pistache in a skin-tight, flesh-colored costume similar to that of Ward's. Yeah. Good Shirley MacLaine. I know. Who hasn't she played? I know. I kind of want to see this now. Just yeah. Even just like a clip of it. Yeah. A 1939 column in the Detroit News reported that while in London as a teenager, yeah. Claire had written in her diary, quote, The humdrum life is not for me. I must feel. I must have emotions. Ordinary marriage and smug respectability appall me. I feel it would be joy to marry a murderer. She had a wild streak. She did. In the end, all that can be said of Clara is that although often she was referred to as poor little rich girl, she decided to defy the conventions of the time and live by her own rules. But it has been stated that much like she lived, she died alone in a crowd of people. An obituary in the Detroit press read, quote, She died a woman without illusions. She had gone the pace. She lived intensely, a slave of her desires. She died an outcast, an old woman of 43 years, just when she should have been in her prime. And that is the story of millionaire, heiress, princess, performer, businesswoman, Clara Ward. Nice. Real quick sources, because I don't want to forget. I actually got this idea from this first YouTube video, History Bedtime Stories, night number 32 by the Detroit History Tours and the Detroit History Club. I've mentioned those videos to you before. Yeah. Another one called Clara Ward Cabaret Act Caused a Belgian Scandal, Smithsonian Channel. And then I did see some excerpts from the autobiography of David Ward, which was self-published in 1912, Uh The Cousin. Yeah. And then websites, Women of Every complexion and complexity.weebly.com househistree.com uh-huh. thefreelibrary.com uh, an article called The Celebrated Princess Chimay ascelibrary.org article William Kelly Pittsburgh Engineer and Henry Bessemer in Steelmaking by Jerry Rogers findagrave.com The Alienist Near and Neurological, which was a quarterly journal of scientific, clinical, and forensic psychiatry of neurology by C.H. Hughes. Interesting. He's the one who had interviewed her and got a few interesting things from her. And then, of course, a dash of Wikipedia. You can't do a story without a dash of Wikipedia. Yes. Uh, There was a lot of dashes of Wikipedia. Uh, Although her, her Wikipedia page, it's okay, but like I said, there was a lot of... It even says at the top, like, basically, we need somebody to fix this. That's what, you know, Wikipedia owns when, like, this isn't verified. You know, we need sources Mm -hmm. for this. You know? And I do have some photos. We've been forgetting to post on social media for, like, ever. People need to see these photos. Yeah. Do you want to just come over here for two seconds and I can show them and then we can react? Yeah. You could tell even just by the photos of her. She looks like a good time. She does. I, like an interesting person and a good time. If anybody knows any more information or has access to anything, I looked for books and stuff like that. I could not yeah. find anything. 
I would be fascinated to learn more. I do think a movie needs to be written about this woman or some yes. sort of, or a mini series. I don't know, but I'm fascinated by her. Yeah. And, you know, she had a lot of advantages, but also her life was not the same. You know what I mean? Like she had a like, very unconventional life. Yeah. Like she kind of like born into a wealthy family, but like a stuffy Kind of like a little stuffy. I think everybody was stuffy though. You know what I mean? Like I think it was, that was of just the times. a norm. And she was kind of like, I'm not here this. for the stuffiness. Yeah. I'm here to live my life. No, I love I, that. I'm a fan. It Same. sounds like she was a little avant-garde in a delightful way though. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm fascinated by this woman. Understandably so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who knew that Michigan had a princess? I know. Right. I think Michigan princess should, or princess. Something about Michigan Princess should be the title of this episode. Okay. And like, it's, she's very, she's not mentioned very much. Like I said, there's not a, I basically read everything on her I could find. Yeah. And it's such an interesting thing that she was a, this big socialite all over these newspapers. Yeah. And things like that. But it's hard to track down information, but that's because it was all these gossip columns about her. Yeah. And I don't think like anything like formal. Was ever like this has all been right. pieced together via gossip columns. So a patchwork story, if you will. Yes. So it's that's why you know there's discrepancies when it comes to like a husband's names, you know, things yeah. like that. But I think when you look at it over overall, it's it's still I don't know. To me, it's just a very interesting, compelling story. Yeah. Well, thank you for that story. My pleasure. I think uh, you have earned a two truths and a lie. Excellent. It's on paper. Yes, I've been, um, as I told you before we were recording, my big activity for my wild Friday night was trying to f- rank the Daniel Craig James Bond movies. And I was Do stuck- I have to figure out your ranking? Because it's going to be impossible. It's on the chalkboard next to you. So like. Oh, I see that now. I- so I watched one of the movies and was using this notepad to keep track of things. Okay. And so it was just on the couch. And I was like, oh, I need to do truth, truth, and a lie. So I was like, I'm just going to use my notepad. Okay. Yeah. So this comes from mental floss. Okay. Because I can't be trusted to come up with them, apparently. That's fair. Every time I do, I feel like it's like, all of them are correct. I'm like, We should call Shit. it two mental flosses and a lie. <laughs> yeah. So I found a mental floss article about basically words that don't mean what they used to. Okay. Like words that meanings yeah. have changed. So I've got three words and the like intimate. what they used to mean. Mm-hmm. You got to figure out which one's false. Cool. Obviously. I'm in. I love it. I love a word thing. Yes. So the first one is bunny, which used to refer to a timid young girl. Okay. To girl was originally a gender neutral term for like child or kid. Okay. And three livid was an adjective describing something as having a gray blue color. I'm probably going to regret. Mom, I'm going to go with livid. That is actually true. Okay. It used to mean blue, gray color. And it kind of got to its meaning now of when someone's just so mad, the color drains from their face. Mm -hmm. That's how how we got there. Okay. Now I'm conflicted because the other two both sounded somewhat familiar. Yeah. I know I've heard of people calling like a pet name like Bunny. Yeah. Usually. Bunny McDougal from Sex in the City. Yes. Yeah. No, I was actually thinking of Dr. Kelso referring to his wife on Scrubs. Mm. <laughs> that too. Very random reference. I can't believe I forgot about that. I used to love Scrubs. Mm-hmm. Do you want to hear the definition? I'm, no, I'm going to go with bunny though. Bunny is the lie. Okay. It actually used to mean squirrel. No, that's 
Because I guess my like, brain. that hurts my brain. Because I, I guess bun was an old English term for squirrel, so bunny, the squirrel. Yeah. I'm not quite sure how it how got. How did we to, get to squirrel? Yeah. Well, I don't know how it ended up being rabbit. You know, from that, if bunny originally meant squirrel, how did yeah. it come to mean rabbit? I don't know. Yeah, I like forgot. Well, you said it was wait, bunny meant before squirrel. Bun was originally an bun. old English term for squirrel. Oh, bun. So bunny squirrel. I don't know. That's confusing. Right? Mm-hmm. So two was true that girl mm-hmm. was originally a gender neutral term for child or kid. And the only reason it became a reference to female is because the term boy came around, which was originally for like some kind of like young male servant kind of thing. Oh, like you come there, here, boy. boy. Yeah. And so because boy ended up being the masculine, mm-hmm. they're like, I guess girl could be the feminine one now. Okay. Which is interesting and weird. Yeah, I don't think I knew the history of it, but I think I've maybe slightly heard that factoid before, but could not place it. Yeah. That's so strange. I have three honorable mentions, too. Yeah, I love an honorable mention. So naughty used to mean, like, to have nothing, which then got extended to meaning, like, you had no morals, Mm -hmm. like, you were wicked, depraved. And kind of in the Middle Ages, and when it became kind of more softer, it was, like, mischievous. Like, naughty is mischievous. Kind of like, no, that's more contemporary. yeah. Yeah. Nervous used to mean, like, sinewy or muscular. Because of the nervous system, like your muscles. Yeah. Sinewy, muscular, powerful, vigorous. 15th century, nervous people were just like jacked and strong. Like if so, you were nervous, you were jacked. Like, okay. Which was interesting. And then they kind of like as time went on, they're like nerves, nervous system. Yeah. Made that more connection, more contemporary meaning of nervous, meaning someone kind of like anxious on edge. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And the last one is nice, which comes from the Latin uh, necius, which like was for ignorant or not knowing, which in the 14th century kind of moved towards wanton. I forgot to pronounce this word. What, what is the W-A-N-T-O-N, word? W-A-N-T-O-N, wanton. W-A-N-T-O-N, wanton. Wanton. Yeah. Yeah. Wanton. <laughs> yeah. Wanton's a soup. <laughs> Delicious soup. Delicious ostentatious, hard to please, cultured, shy, coward. Like, nice just went through the ringer until like in the 17th century, it kind of took on its current meaning of just like, mm. oh, they're nice. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Interesting. I love, I do entomology, etymology. That's, etymology. Yeah. yeah. I love etymology. Same. I don't, I'm, I'm not well versed or anything, but every time I learn stuff, I'm like, oh, it's so weird and interesting. I sent you a snap yesterday about something etymology that I was like, you knew right away, but I was kind of like, what blew was it? it was about Canada dry. Oh, the dry. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I just kind of like, oh, Canada dry mm-hmm. ginger ale. Then like I went to the Wikipedia page because I was trying to see like if it was older than Verner's or not. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, they call it Canada dry because it's not a sweet ginger ale. It's dry. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that makes so much sense. Because it is I'm yeah, not that sweet is. ginger ale. And like, mm-hmm. I like it. And it yeah, feels I blasphemous like- to say that. <laughs> I know. I feel I, I like it a bit better. I mean. Verner's is in a league of its own. When it comes down to it. I don't really consider Verner's a ginger ale. You know, yes. Verner's is Verner's. Yeah. When it comes down to it, honestly, I like a ginger beer better than anything. Just because it's a dry one. Yeah. Do you, are you brand loyal for any ginger beers? Or is it kind of just like whatever looks good to you? 
Well, Trader Joe's has a triple one that's really nice. Ooh, okay. And actually, the simple syrup bottle that I brought today, uh-huh. with the lavender simple syrup, that's an old bottle from that. Interesting. So their bottles are really nice and useful, too, because they got that swing top on there. Oh, yeah. Very reusable. And then Reed's is pretty good. Okay. I think I usually I get Gosling's. I haven't seen Reed's in a long time. I'm okay with Gosling's. I don't dislike it. Yeah. But I'm not going to... I wouldn't just have a cup of that. I'll have it in a mixed situation. I literally this past week had a Gosling's just straight up. I, I definitely it, drank ginger beer as a drink. Yeah. Yeah. Like that Trader Joe's one, I will. Drink. I just like wanted a pop and all I have was Diet yeah. Pepsi. And I'm like, it's 10 p.m. I couldn't possibly drink caffeine because now I'm old and like that affects me. I haven't slept well in like two weeks, which is part of the reason why I'm tired. Yeah. But that's poor decisions on time it's a management mixture for me. It's for like me. part of it's, um, Poor decision making and part of it's just I wake up way earlier than my alarm, partially just because of my body, partially because of this little cat yeah. who likes to play with her toys yeah. early in the morning yeah, or just like meow in random parts of the house. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, girl, what is your malfunction? And she just meow, gotta remind you she's meow. here. Yeah. Not at three in the morning, girl. No, no. She has to remind you that she's here every few hours. I've literally like I'm starting to keep earplugs on my bed. Although she's sleeping through this. I know. Very much right um, now. Apparently, you get to sleep. That's nice for you, isn't it? <laughs> uh, anyway, but I think that, that wraps us. We are wrapped like a le- nude bodysuit. Absolutely. <laughs> if you wanna reach us on our socials, you can follow us at Detroit Strange on. Instagram, Facebook. You can also email us at DetroitStrange at gmail.com if you've got any requests or anything you want to see happen or just want to say, hey, yeah, we'd love for, you know, to hear from you. And if you want to support the show, a couple of ways you could do it. You can subscribe, rate, review. We love that. Uh, if you send us a good review, we'll read it on the air. Uh, there's also our thread list if you want some swag, swag, swag. We got some cool shit up there. And then our Patreon, which has some exclusive content, which I think we're going to watch a movie after this. So there's going to be a new episode of uh, Strange Cinema soon. Yeah. So keep your eyes out for that if you are a patron. And if you're not a patron. Become one. Yeah. Mm Because we do cool shit. Mm -hmm. But. I I think. Until next time. Stay strange. This has been a production of Planet Ant Podcast, powered by Pinecast. Our theme song was recorded by Detroit's own Sax and Violence.